care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the extended free preview of this month's What a Cartoon Movie, all about a bug's life. And I am one of your hosts, Bob Mackey, and I've got a fine poo-poo platter for all of you. And who is here with me today, as always? Getting drunk on blood today. It's Henry Gilbert. And yes, this month we are looking at A Bug's Life, the second Pixar film, and it is underrated, I dare say. Uh, It's better than you think it is, but not... Super great. Yeah, look, we're not saying like, <laughs> oh, everybody overlook this too much, but we've gone from being like, yeah, who'd ever rewatch Bugs Life to go like, eh, it's all right. That's pretty good. I'm a Bugs Life booster now. <laughs> I used to think the characters looked hideous, and now I actually kind of like them. I want to hug Flick <laughs> and then like quickly brush myself off. Like, yeah, I bug. bet on eBay we could buy a plush Flick for very cheap. A gently loved <laughs> plush Flick. <laughs> but yes, you're going to hear a bit of our history of Bugs Life, but if you want to hear the entire thing and also get a special syncable commentary for a Bugs Life starring me and Henry, please go to Patreon dot com slash talking simpsons and sign up at the ten dollar level you'll get to hear the rest of the podcast as well as nearly five years worth of what a cartoon movie podcast they're all about three to six hours long covering everything anime walt disney movies uh, pixar movies we covered every toy story movie to date and uh this summer we've been covering other pixar movies like the incredibles and toy story 4 and next month we've got another pixar film for you so we've had uh, so many things going on for the past five years if there's an animated movie you like we probably covered it and if not i bet we'll cover it soon and that's happening at patreon.com slash talking simpsons and when you sign up for the ten dollar level you get all of the five dollar stuff too henry what's happening at that five dollar level that you get automatically for 10 bucks oh my gosh so many things bob each month you get two brand new exclusive podcasts of us covering talking futurama and talking of the hill a new episode each month about those series that we go super in depth just like we do an episode of the simpsons or a movie and you get a huge back catalog of us covering every episode of the critic every episode of mission hill all the previous episodes about futurama and king of the hill and many of our favorite episodes of batman the animated series over 150 exclusive podcasts that are full featured podcasts as well in addition to all of the $10 things Bob was just telling you about for What a Cartoon Movie. It is an amazing deal at patreon.com slash talking Simpsons. And if you've never signed up for Patreon before, it is very easy to do so. Once you sign up, you can use any app you use to listen to the podcast to hear all of our bonus podcasts alongside your free podcast as part of your podcasting lifestyle. And there is an app Patreon has for any smart device. And if you use that app, you can hear our bonus content that way as well. But no matter which way you do it, it's so easy to access all the content waiting for you at patreon.com slash talking simpsons thanks for listening to this little ad up front now we'll get to our preview of a history of a bug's life So just to remind everybody out there, we've covered the Pixar movies that come immediately before and after A Bug's Life. So it's Toy Story 1 and 2, and I highly recommend you check out those podcasts to get the context of where we are in the history as to what comes before and after this movie. Like the founding of Pixar and then them making a very quick sequel, a very quality sequel under duress. And that's the story of Toy Story 1 and 2. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is now the sophomore jinx or the sophomore like effort slump slump. well yeah i guess that uh you can either have a sophomore jinx or slump or you can surprise people with your sophomore effort but it is always about like okay what's your second thing especially if you're not doing a sequel 
what's uh, can this magic trick work twice kind of deal. And also remember that immediately after they are done with press for a bug's life, they have to go back to the East Bay and make Toy Story 2 from scratch. From scratch, guys. You don't make Bob uh, point at the sign, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm not going to explain it again. Uh, actually, if you listen to the ancient commentary on the DVD recorded before the movie has released, at the end of the commentary, they're like, it's one in the morning, and we need to come back here at seven to work on Toy Story 2. Goodbye, everybody. Good God. Yeah. Wow. I, I never listen to commentary. I, gotta, I, I think a million years ago, I listened to the Toy Story ones, but never... If there were them, but ne never to the Bugs Life one. Yeah, right? the commentary now is 25 years old. Isn't that great? That is something else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, of course, if you know about Pixar, you're probably aware of the mythical lunch in the summer of 1994. <laughs> oh, this lunch. Uh, that spawned the pitches for many of their now classic movies. This famous lunch was actually part of the marketing for Wally. -E. The teaser trailer is like, once upon a time, there was a lunch in Point Richmond. <laughs> and they came up with a Bugs Life and Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo, and WALL-E. Yeah, I mean, it's as far as marketing goes, it's very smart marketing because you have WALL-E, which was, you know, a whole new concept, and also a concept that they are trying to not show you anything that happens after 20 minutes into the movie. And so how do you sell this movie? And you say, hey, you remember all of the magic you felt with all those other Pixar movies? Well, the very same day they came up with this idea, and it must be equal to those ones you loved because it was on the same day. And I guess, too, it was also marketing on, at least to me, uh, as a memorial to one of the guys at that lunch who was no longer with us by the time yeah. Wally came out. Uh, the yeah. people there were John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Pete Docter, and Joe Ramph. Ramph died, I believe, in 2005 in a car accident, but he was part of the brain trust early on. Um, and actually, speaking of Joe Ramph, I found out because Henry and I had just seen Roger Rabbit in theaters, and it's the 35th anniversary. I found out that Joe Ramph was one of the two storyboarders on the Donald versus Daffy sequence in that movie. Oh, wow. I, I profiled the other border of it, uh, but not Ramph, which that's also great because, yeah, the, the story that guy, the other border of it told was Chuck Jones was originally, he boarded it, and it just, the pacing was so slow and boring, and they're like... I know this is a complete insult to the one of the most important directors in animation history, but this shit sucks yeah. and we need to redo it. You lost it, old man. <laughs> no, upon seeing that again in theaters, I thought, wow, movies just never got better than this. Daffy versus Donald on the on the big screen. It's it's amazing. Yeah, never and to be in the big audience, to see it in a full house, when they clap on the screen, we're all clapping along with them of like, yay, like it. God, it, it plays so differently in on the big screen. I, D Daffy and Donald versus each other, that is the best part of the movie. Yeah, probably. it's better than Bugs and Mickey just kind of commenting on Eddie Valiant falling to his death. Yeah, because the Ducks, actually, they're the bad boys of both their things. And I'm also glad Chuck Jones didn't uh, do that part because his Daffy's not the right Daffy to fight Donald. I love his Daffy. But he it needs to be a wacky Daffy who faces Donald, not uh, a guy who's sick of being overshadowed. Yeah, yeah, that would be the last time. God, we're talking about Roger Rabbit because <laughs> we like that movie more. That'd be the last time you would see that Daffy for a long time. Yeah, because Space Jam is still pretty much the jealous Daffy. And same in Tiny Toons as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, back to A Bug's Life. Yes, Joe Ramp. Yes, yeah. uh, we just covered The Incredibles, and that was their first movie to uh, star a cast of humans in 2004. So clearly... They're not ready for this to happen, a movie to be released in 1998, but they decided insects were a simple enough goal to be achievable given the technology available at the time. So 
it is a, a way to prove themselves like, yes, we animated toys and you thought that was great, but you thought that's all we could do. But no, this time we're going to animate living things and they're going to be outside. Yes, Toy Story has some outdoor scenes, but for the most part, you're in rooms with uh, non-living things. I mean, the uh, most of the outdoor parts of the first Toy Story, like the backyard where they confront the kid and Sid? S- where they yeah. confront Sid and scare the crap out of them. That is like just a desert wasteland. Like it's not really, it does not look uh, anywhere near as lush and nice as the island in this movie. Yeah, they're really doubling down on nature in this movie, trying to be as photorealistic as possible given what they could do at the time. And of course, A Bug's Life is a twist on the classic Aesop fable, The Ant and the Grasshopper, which Disney had adapted in 1934 because it was public domain. There was a silly symphony called The Grasshopper and the Ants. And that would actually end up on the Blu-ray of A Bug's Life. If you want to, want to see that, it might be on Disney Plus. I'm not sure. Yeah, how how many kids these days are being raised on that very American story of the 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 tale of the lazy grasshopper who just wanted to have fun and the hardworking ant who saved up his money responsibly? I think there are some weird class and race implications in that story. <laughs> what do you mean? It's just a grasshopper that parties and wiles his life away. I'm that, sick uh, of these lazy grasshoppers. <laughs> they all taking advantage of us ants and. Yeah, I think uh, I believe in the Disney one is a nicer ending where he helps the grasshopper and gives him. Uh, a, he doesn't let him starve to death. They sing a song. It's fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah, the classic story goes, oh, uh, the grasshopper, you know, wiles away his days, doesn't work. The ant prepares for winter. And then like when it's wintertime, the grasshopper has no food. So he's forced to learn how to be industrious from the ants but their twist was their very 90s twist was well the grasshoppers are bigger than the ants what if they just kicked the ants asses and stole their food <laughs> it's uh this is really about wanting to own the means of production for the ants this this is the type of movie that you make when you're young and hungry and so i wouldn't call this a particularly political movie or like ooh, the socialist allegory of a bug's life but this is definitely the story you make while you're being bossed around by Disney, not while you're part of Disney and everybody who like this is before John Lasseter is as rich as he will be. Yeah. And uh, I I also feel like there's a little maybe this this came up in your thing, but I couldn't not think of Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, and, and uh, excising of demons people felt towards him. Well, he plays a big role in this uh, story. Okay. If you don't remember, <laughs> I'll tell you soon. Um, so also in the late 80s, Disney was toying with the idea of making an animated film about ants called Army Ants. And I'm guessing this was before The Little Mermaid because the only concept art for this project was in existence in 1988. Mm. So there was an idea about making a a bug movie at Disney in the late 80s, but there were also a lot of other movie ideas. And we only know about some of them. That's interesting. I would, uh, that sounds like the type of thing that would have been at the, the gong show, the famous gong show pitch. That's almost as famous as the, the lunch, the gong show where they kept pitching Treasure Island in space. And until Michael Eisner finally agreed to it, because otherwise Musker and Clements would leave for DreamWorks. We need to know which lunch was better, though, in terms of what they (laughs) ate. Who catered it better? Yes. I bet if we go to Point Richmond, which is like honestly a bike ride away from here, we can find that cafe they met at. I bet the table has been bronzed. Like this was the table. (laughs) We, you know, we we should take advantage of that while we still live here. That's true. I could do it before I leave. So (laughs) let's get in a lift after this right now. Yes. And and go right there. (laughs) We can absorb some of that genius. So uh, during an early test screening for Toy Story, Michael Eisner approves this pitch they come up with, this clever twist on the ant and the grasshopper. 
And by August of 95, uh, the idea is pitched to Disney. Coincidentally, it was pitched on Jeffrey Katzenberg's final day at the company. Whoa. Wow. Wow. So this is, boy, I, uh, this has been in my head too, because I've been listening a little, re-listening to some of my Disney war audiobook. And so I'm, I'm remind, this is a fraught time at the Disney office. We're back to Katzenberg. He was not, uh, featured in the Incredibles podcast or in Toy Story 4. It's been, it's been a bit, I think. It's been a little while. Yeah. yeah. Well, but now we're finally back into the Katzman territory. <laughs> so Lasseter was the sole director of Toy Story. But then he realized that, oh, I can't do this again on another movie. There's just simply too much going on. So this is when he pulls in Andrew Stanton as his co-director in order to groom him for future features. And of course, he will go on to direct Finding Nemo and its sequel and WALL-E and also the live action John Carter. And then later in his career, he actually directs a lot of TV. And I was actually surprised to see him on on the screen as one of the Better Call Saul directors on an episode. I did not know this. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, hey, that's cool. I I mean, he still is like a, a big wig at the Pixar factory, right? Uh, yeah. He's he's not getting laid off. <laughs> no, no. He's. Uh, I mean, man, he's getting up there in age. That, uh, but I, I'd say he's one of the best directors they got. But I I can see why. Being the executive of Pixar is that is a full time job in addition to directing a film, which sounds like is like three full time jobs. Yeah, especially because the idea of directing a CGI film was new. Mm-hmm. No one had done it before this, and he realized like, oh, this is actually a lot of work that I can't do on my own. And that, I mean, at this point in time, almost all the Disney movies had two directors, right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Brad Bird's opinion, uh, when I was doing Incredibles research, mostly he felt. That while it was done to spread out um, the workload, it was also done so neither guy gets powerful enough to challenge the uh, Michael Eisner type person who tells you what to do. Mm, I see. Though he did say that he thought Musker and Clements actually did have a de- uh, worthy exception to that. He was he was nice to them, but in general, he did feel like co-directing wasn't the best way to get artistic vision across. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a very Brad Bird idea, though. Like, <laughs> yes. Only one man. <laughs> though then again, he co-directed uh, Simpsons episodes with Jeffrey Lynch, so, uh, you know, physician heal thyself. I-, I think that was more because Jeffrey wasn't ready yet. Mm-hmm. So it was more like he should have just given Jeffrey all the credits, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, he should just step back and let him. I mean, yeah, that Lynch, uh, he is one of the best Simpsons directors they ever had, but it seemed like he could barely get out one a year uh, because he was so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he did Who Shot Mr. Burns Part One. Yes, That's him. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh. part, yeah, and and the Hellfish episode, yeah. which some like, of the best looking ones. Sorry, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, let's talk about ants. All yes, right. Ants. We Boy, all know we ants. getting sent off right, to other things to talk about. Uh, you to ant, as ants would say. Ugh. I think that was <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's character in that movie. I yeah, uh, his uh, boy. What a great combo! Uh, Sylvester <laughs> Stallone and Woody Allen with the best of pal. I, th- I think uh, my wife Nina must have seen that in the last two years, and as a joke for a bit, we would say "you to ant" to each other. <laughs> it's just, oh god! And then Sharon Stone falls in love with him. It's uh, god. Hey, uh, she's of, of age in the movie. That's true. Hey, that's true. Yeah, uh, that can that tells you Woody Allen didn't write the movie, huh? Hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to talk a bit about the scandal because you can't avoid it when talking about a bug's life. Uh, so my source for this is an of the era Business Week article called "Ants versus a Bug's Life," very to the point. And I want to point out at this point that uh, Pixar and Jeffrey Katzenberg had a great relationship together. Katzenberg is the one who pushed Disney into working with Pixar in the first place, mostly as an excuse to headhunt John Lasseter, but still, he was the guy who got Disney to work with other studios like this. 
I would say Katzenberg as a an executive, he had a better vision for the future of 3D animation than other folks at Disney for sure. Mm-hmm. He's he deserves a good amount of credit. He seems again, he seems like a real asshole, but he does <laughs> he deserves more credit as far as being an executive goes. He's no Zaslav. Oh God, yeah, Zas, Zas like Zaslav only knows how to cancel projects. Mm-hmm. That's the it, it seems like Katzenberg can at least okay a project and then note it to death and complain, but he will give something a green light. And Zaslav came from fucking reality TV. At least Katzenberg came from Paramount, you know? He was a guy who came to Hollywood thinking, I'm going to make a movie. Those, those things, those dreams go away at a certain point. But if you never even started with that dream and you're just like, ah, eh, reality shit, that's what people like, right? Like, God. Yeah, I mean, uh, Zaslav is so bad that we are now defending Jeffrey Katzenberg on the podcast. <laughs> well, and also you see those news stories of like, I forget which venue it was, but saying like that, I think it was Warner that they were going to start using AI for the approval process as yes. well. Now those jobs you can replace because the algorithm already decides all that stuff. Why do you need intermediaries who get seven figures, eight figures? They're the grasshoppers sucking up all of the seeds in this scenario and you don't need them. Yeah. I say replace those jobs. <laughs> so yes, the Pixar and Katzenberg, they get along together well to the point where Katzenberg leaves for DreamWorks, and while the Pixar crew is in L.A. doing post-production on Toy Story, they take advantage of a standing invitation to check out DreamWorks. Katzenberg is like, come on down, guys. I want to show you what I'm building here. And they're excited because, hey, they know Jeffrey uh, is doing CGI stuff, and it's a new field, and they're excited about it. But they're also very naive. Mm -hmm. So uh, Andrew Stanton and John Lasseter... Go to me with Katzenberg to check out what's going on there. And this is where the deception begins because uh, he's very excited about this new project just called Bugs at this point. So, of course, Lasseter tells Katzenberg all about this idea called Bugs, which would later be named uh, Bugs Life due to what happens next. Right. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. I- I mean, I can see, haven't we all just been excited at an idea and you want to just tell your bros about it? But. Uh, not all of your bros are the executives of a brand new uh, young and hungry animation studio. Yeah, and uh, DreamWorks bought PDI, Pacific Data Imaging or Images, the CGI company that animated things like Homer Cube. They would go on to make uh, Ants and Shrek and things like that. Pixar and PDI were buds. They were the only people kind of doing it in their field, and they were friends with each other until this point. (laughs) Because they're all Bay Area guys. They're all in the same area. I mean, you if you knew how to animate CGI moving around, you very likely had Silicon Valley roots. Like, that, that was... The only places that knew how to do it were pretty much back then. So, yeah, I... Uh, this also is in our Shrek podcast, a little bit of the history of, of PDI. But yeah, they, they definitely learned a lot from working directly with David Silverman on that Homer Cube. Like, I think they learned a lot about character animation mm. uh, from that, uh, that special there. Yeah, yeah and that, I mean, go back to our podcast about that. That was revolutionary to see animated characters moving so fluidly that were humanoid and also very close approximations of the 2d designs we were used to you'd never seen anything like it like when homer says this looks expensive in your head you're thinking this does look extremely expensive oh my god i never thought i'd see without that segment there'd be no shrek Mm -hmm. so think about how much you like it uh is that good or bad yeah (laughs) i want to quote this business week article uh here we go quote Thinking back, Laster says he should have seen trouble coming. 
When told about bugs, Katzenberg seemed to do some calculations in his head and asked when it would be released. When Lasseter said probably in Thanksgiving of 1998, Katzenberg said, hmm, that's when the Prince of Egypt is coming out. Still, Lasseter and Stanton left the meeting with no sense of concern. Mm. So he's really feeling out what the competition is doing. He's using the guise of friendship to get secrets. <laughs> Insider <laughs> secrets. Uh, so why do you think you'll be uh, done with that? Uh, you know, just curious. Oh, Thanksgiving. Um, That's a busy time for movies. Yeah. <laughs> it, it would be a very busy time for movies because we would have ants. There would be uh, Prince of Egypt, the Rugrats movie, and A Bug's Life within two months. Uh, Prince of Egypt, that's another podcast-worthy one, but, I mean, it was made to be the movie Katzenberg couldn't get to do at Disney. Like, it's supposed to be this very grown-up, all-adults thing taken from biblical scripture, like, with amazing animation. And then it's so funny that at the same time, he's like, Hmm, you know what? We actually need to just rip off Pixar and have a different thing ready right before that instead of just focusing on the prestige of the Prince of Egypt. We want to fool moviegoers mm-hmm. into thinking they're seeing the thing they came to the theater for. <laughs> so, uh, yes, this is when, you know, they have no concern. Uh, they're like, oh, yeah, it's good to catch up with Jeffrey anyways. Let's go home. And then Lasseter finds out about the betrayal because a higher up from PDI meets with Lasseter to tell him the shocking news that the DreamWorks deal with PDI was contingent upon them finishing Ants before A Bug's Life. So I honestly think the PDI acquisition happened after Lasseter heard about Bugs. That uh, absolutely sounds right to me. I mean, I would think he'd want... He had such a good time with, uh, with Pixar. There'd be no way he wouldn't want 3D to be part of their system but for my shrek research too was like when it began at dreamworks animation 2d was still his plan like it it took shrek well after toy story they're like well maybe it shouldn't be 2d but it took shrek to really prove that 3d was the future for them to make you know billion dollar movies yeah and then they would just put out sinbad and that'd be it for 2d movies at dreamworks yeah and then and rotel dorado was also not uh, not their best uh, money maker either no yeah. way so I'll quote the article again. Uh, Lasseter does say, however, that he smelled a rat when he began reading about DreamWorks Ants project in trade magazines. He claims he called Katzenberg and said, Jeffrey, how could you? He claims Katzenberg hemmed and hawed and then admitted he was making ants. I couldn't believe it, says Lasseter. He started talking about all this paranoid stuff about conspiracies that Disney was out to get him. He said he had to do something. That's when I realized it wasn't about me. We at Pixar were just cannon fodder in his fight with Disney. Wow. That, well, I mean, that that part makes so much sense that a guy like Katzenberg would be like, everything's fair. They went against me first. So this is just like me playing dirty back at them. You see, I'm retaliating, but I'm using you as my weapon. <laughs> yes. Your, your trust in me was what I used against them. And uh, so, you know, you, you can understand why I did it. So uh. this is all according to Steve Jobs and Lasseter, but apparently Katzenberg wanted to make a deal that if they moved the release date of Bugs, he would stop development of Ants. Of course, Jobs did not agree to this deal. That sounds believable to me. That sounds like Jeffrey Katzenberg to me, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he didn't want A Bug's Life to compete with Prince of Egypt. No, I, I mean, I get that. Like He wants Prince of Egypt to be the big thing for the holidays, though he should have known Disney was going to have something then, but... Perhaps after Toy Story, he's like, oh, the next thing from Pixar, that's a monster we have to deal with. So, man, that he spends all this money of David Geffen's, (laughs) really, to 
diffuse Bugs Life by putting out ants just before it. So then it makes less money to hopefully be less of an enemy to Prince of Egypt. It's crazy. Like, yeah, ants is not a movie. It's a smokescreen. They wanted people <laughs> to see ants first. And then when Bugs Life comes around, viewers would say, oh, we saw that bug movie. Let's wait for the next one. And then they would see Prince of Egypt. That was their plan. And I feel for PDI, too, because, I mean, they're not... I wouldn't say that back then they were equal at all to Pixar in character animation, but for them to even try to keep up with it, but on a like a seemingly a year less time of working on a movie, like under that kind of dress, there's no way ants could compare. But like you said, it wasn't about beating them. It was about hurting them. It was uh, yeah. sacrificing itself. Yeah. So here is the Katzenberg in DreamWorks side of the story, which I don't believe. So there was the whole army ants thing at Disney when Katzenberg was there. And Katzenberg also claims that ants was based on a 1991 pitch that was relayed to him in 1994 while he was at Disney. Mm. And also some of the ideas from ants comes from a unused 1991 pitch from PDI for a potential feature film called bugs lights out. And you can see about 10 seconds of this pitch on YouTube. So there are various ants related things in existence before a bug's life. But, I mean, if you just use Occam's Razor, you will see that Ants was put into production to destroy Bugs Life, and that's all there is to it. If I were a lawyer, I would have told Katzenberg, like, can you prove somebody ever before Lasseter told you about a cartoon that would have ants in it? And he's like, yeah, that's uh, people pitch stories all the time to me so I can prove that I didn't just hear about ants from the Bugs Life guys. So it's easy to just say, like, oh, well, I, I heard that pitch then and I heard that. And I mean, lucky for him that PDI had out of their many story pitches, I'm sure, had at least one that involved bugs to be like well we did have a bug idea <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if they could have taken it to court they would have but i don't think it, i mean there's enough plausible deniability to make it not stand up in court and i believe in 98 they were still in the middle of the big jeffrey katzenberg lawsuit which is the basis of like five chapters in the disney war book because in the disney war book the guy is constantly just reading quotes from evidence presented in lawsuits and the big one uh well before my the ovitz one later but the big one was katzenberg felt he was fired and not paid what he what should have been paid when he left disney and so during this time he is in the middle of suing disney for like hundreds of millions of dollars and he will eventually win it too yeah i forget when he wins that but he is uh in court as late as the production of road el dorado because the only quotes I could find on the record from David Silverman about that movie was him talking about how busy Jeffrey Katzenberg was. <laughs> I guess when you're in the courtroom and uh, giving depositions all the time, no time to give notes on a movie. No. <laughs> uh, back to the history of Bugs Life. I, I had to mention Ants because, I mean, you can't mention a Bugs Life with Ants. And maybe that's why Bugs Life feels lesser because there was this weird scandal wrapped up around it. Katzenberg poisoned the well, which is funny because then... There's like eight other movies, uh, situations for Pixar that are just like that. I mean, the big one is Finding Nemo and Shark's Tale are the same year. And it clearly, it also felt like DreamWorks heard they were making a movie about a fish. And they're like, well, we can make a fish movie and it'll start movie stars. And we'll add more celebrities. <laughs> so many celebs, yes. And even yeah. Martin Scorsese playing himself, right? Yes. Or it, not himself, his, his fish self. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's his fish sona, yeah. And 
James Gandolfini was originally in it and then uh, quit it because it was too, I think, too crappy. Or maybe he's just like, oh, oh, you just want me to play Tony Soprano in this? No, no, thank you. (laughs) So uh, back to the writing of the movie. Uh, They have their twist on the Ant and the Grasshopper fable, but A Bug's Life has some story problems early on. And that is namely, there's no flick. The circus bugs were going to come to Ant Island to deceive the ants and then have a change of heart and help them fight off the grasshoppers. But they couldn't figure out a convincing way for that change of heart to happen. I see. So it was just the traveling circus, the flea circus comes, and then they, they're they the ones tricking people instead of a series of misunderstandings. Yeah, I feel like uh, the original story was that two like ant soldiers go out to the city and they overhear the circus, but Flick in that version of the movie was the circus ringleader named red and he was a red ant interesting yeah you know if he were a red ant he'd really stand out from all the other gray ants that all look the same it it looks like they're in a fucking easter basket these ants it's all of these pastel purples and greens and pinks yeah it's it's uh it just feels so blah there's a great i feel like they mock that design style in their post-credits gag reel because the the edie mcclure ant knocks over like a fake standee of an ant and that's when it hits you like oh i guess these do really just kind of blend in and you don't even notice them so yeah they create flick uh a resident of ant island who is honestly a very stereotypical animated movie hero and i'm i honestly give toy story credit for not going with that choice for uh toy story Uh, sorry did i say i give toy story credit i give pixar credit Yeah, yeah yeah no i yes it's so many kids movies are like and this is the one chicken or the one this is the i was thinking of chicken run many times watching this movie by the way like this has a lot of similarities to chicken Run. oh yeah you know what you're right yeah like every kid's movie and it's a stereotype it's like the goofy outsider who actually knows how to solve the problem it's like uh, ariel and the little mermaid and bell and beauty and the beast and aladdin and aladdin and uh, it goes on and on and on somebody uh, i mean it's a very american kids movie trope too of like oh the one the one person who thinks this system doesn't totally work. The individual that stands out of the system and tries to change it in some way, though not not too much. You don't want to change. Incrementalism yeah. is the important part. <laughs> but in Toy Story, it's about the leader of the toys who loses status and the wacky outsider gains all the status. So it's a very interesting twist on a kid's movie. It's not expected at all, which I think is why it was a big hit. Yeah, yeah. It's And, and your main character is like a jealous jerk who, who and then everybody thinks murdered a guy. Unlike this one where it's like, well, yeah, Flick's just... You know, he's the he's the hard scrabble guy. He's he's also the wacky inventor. Like he's he's basically the nutty professor kind of guy, except uh, more not as socially awkward as the nutty professor. <laughs> yeah, uh, not quite as horny either. No, no, no. That he's a, a chase kiss on the cheek is all Flick needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I forget how ants breed, but it's probably disgusting. Uh oh man, if somebody is the queen ant, then they're all fucking her. In they're this all thing, getting in they? on Phyllis Diller. Jeez, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they can't make a second movie. Uh, <laughs> Alex Rocco and Roddy McDowell running a train. Oh on Jesus Christ! <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, so yeah, Andrew Stanton is writing this script, but to help him out, we got two comedy writers on board, uh, Don McEnery and Bob Shaw, and we can briefly cover who they are. So, uh, they started their career by writing the Seinfeld episode, The Tape. It's from season three, but Larry David is uh, getting a writing credit on that because he was the showrunner and he's selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's been coming up again lately on this. If you folks should read that taylor sheridan interview that he did for the hollywood reporter if for no other reason than to see 
what cocaine does to someone's brain i think because it's all about like i'm the only person who writes everything i write it all in an afternoon every script is the greatest and no one can tell me what to do <laughs> yeah it does feel like some some drug is fueling that i i can say on the record aaron sorkin has said he had similar approaches as a head writer and he is a big user of, he enjoys cocaine yeah. this is on the record i think he was a user of cocaine yeah I, because I, if he still is i think he'd just be dead his doctor would tell him like look i don't care how rich you are you can't you you can't be a 65 year old regular cocaine user <laughs> so i do want to talk about bob shaw yes. because interesting side note about him is that bob shaw was an old comedy pal of Larry David, who actually played a few bit parts on Seinfeld, mostly cabbies. And he is actually, based on a source I read, George Costanza is, is a composite character. He's mostly Larry David, but he's other people as well. And he, a big part of him is Bob Shaw. Oh, interesting. Yeah, man. Who looks a lot like George Costanza. <laughs> you know, uh, he could, Jason Alexander could have played Flick in this movie too. They wanted to keep it all must-see TV on I, this. You know, I bet he auditioned. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he, he wouldn't have the kind of cute innocence that Dave Foley brings to brings to everything. He's such an adorable little guy. He's boyish even as he enters his sixties. <laughs> to this day, even even when I saw his his uh, aging nude body, I was just like, "Yep, this is a, a childish man." Yeah. So the only reason I ever found out anything about him is that an old friend of his wrote an article called "Whatever Happened to Bob Shaw." Because he sort of had just disappeared. I don't know if there was an obituary at any point, but nobody knows where Bob Shaw is. And uh, in 2015, this guy wrote this article. In the same year, Larry David called Bob Shaw, quote, the funniest comic who never made it big. So Larry gave him like a one season job on Seinfeld. I don't think Shaw liked being on a sitcom. Shaw was this guy, this like big comedy guy in the 70s running around with like Jay Leno and Larry David in that era of comedians. Oh, OK, well, so, hey, he sounds like a guy who got some big paychecks and then uh, just went off and did what uh, like you know, lived a private life. Uh, that's that's, uh, you know, not there's nothing wrong with that. It's respectable is yeah. what I'll say. Yeah. Uh, and Don McHenry is another comic. Uh, I don't have much info on him as I do when it comes to Shaw, but they did everything together. So. Before this, they are two of several credited screenwriters on Hercules, the Disney movie. Oh, wow. And after this, they would write the German-Spanish CGI co-production Boo Zeno and the Snurks. What? Yeah. What? And yeah. you better believe it says from the writers of A Bug's Life. <laughs> it looks like uh, Xavier Renegade Angel. That's, man, that had to be an awesome paycheck for yeah. probably two drafts of that movie from from very trusting German producers. Yeah, That's please fun. please look up the trailer for Boo, Zeno, and the Snurks. I think it has two other names. Wow, I have never heard of this thing ever. <laughs> and they're also the writers of Stuart Little 3. I looked at the trailer for that. It looks like absolute shit, but it's also weirdly a cell-shaded CGI movie from like 2005. Direct to DVD, but... All the voice actors are there. Gina Davis is there and Jeff Goldblum is there. Well, that's an, okay. You know, I remember seeing at least posters for it that I thought, hey, at least they're trying something new with the, the animation style instead of real life thing, which I think it worked fine for the first Stuart Little, I guess, but I, I prefer full animation for stuff. And let's talk about animation. So the biggest change over Toy Story is that this movie uses the 2.35 to 1 CinemaScope aspect ratio. Very, very widescreen. And Toy Story was 1.85 to 1. That's usually the aspect ratio comedies are in for the most part. And this means they had a lot more space to fill in when it comes to the frame you're looking at. It did seem very wide on my television, yeah, which why I think... 
Uh, the only other Pixar one we've seen with that was like, wasn't it? Toy Story 4 was in that extra wider screen too, wasn't it? Yeah, the... they'd actually go back to 1.85 to 1 until The Incredibles. So we just did The Incredibles. That is CinemaScope aspect ratio, but uh, they didn't uh, do that you know, permanently from A Bug's Life onwards. I mean, that's a lot to render for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a lot of visual research for the film was done with what was called the bug cam. And it was this miniature camera on wheels that was fastened to the end of a stick. And they would just push it through the grass to give them a bug's eye view of the world. And it was mostly done around the Pixar office park. They didn't get to go to any extravagant locales to do research. They were just pushing a camera around their little office park in Richmond. Oh, that's cute. That, uh, well, and I mean, scale-wise, it's like Toy Story, but smaller. Like a an ant would really, even an ant would only go up to like the middle of Woody's boot, maybe. Like even a grasshopper is not knee high. Uh, a grasshopper is knee high to a Woody instead of a knee high to a grasshopper is the, the silly saying. I think Woody could just crush an ant in his hand in this movie. <laughs> and he'd love it. Yeah. He'd be like, ah, that's, that's power. <laughs> so uh, they also took inspiration from the 1996 French documentary Microcosmos, which is all about the lives of insects. And I remember seeing this VHS cover in video stores for a long time when I was a kid. It is a praying mantis in front of a full moon, and the praying mantis is looking at the camera, and it has cool shades on. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's bringing yeah. it back. I I rented that one to several people when I worked at the video store in Berkeley, but I never watched myself. I Mostly nature documentaries of that, when I think of them with ants, it's like you watch ants like rip apart other animals. I, I, the one that's always stuck with me, because I then saw it, a similar thing in real life, was like a bumblebee just dies like just falls down and then a bunch of ants just all get around it carry it to the anthill to feast on its insides i think there's a lot of bug sex in that movie you see how it happens and oh yeah the tagline for the american release was it's jurassic park in your own backyard <laughs> uh, yeah uh, i'm sure it is guys i'm sure it is <laughs> that, that hey that'll get a child to rent it for sure oh, yeah i feel like an insect with sunglasses and the words jurassic park is they're trying to get kids <laughs> to rent this movie hey kids you know it's not a bad idea of like kids. Kids do like bugs. Some kids like bugs. Not yeah. all kids, but kids like bugs. I liked bugs as a kid. Now I hate them. Creepy crawlers. I my brother liked creepy crawlers. I did not like creepy crawlers. The and I mean the branded creepy crawlers. That, the the male easy bake of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Boys don't cook things. They they put together goo that then turns into like shitty rubber. They make bugs out of poison. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we have the bug cam. One thing I wish I could. Find, and I'm pretty sure it's on that original DVD release is that there is a pitch video for this movie with John Lasseter playing an explorer character talking to the camera and I'm pretty sure he's playing an Asian man Ooh. so I don't think they put that on modern releases of the movie but I do remember seeing it on that old 2000 release of the DVD. Damn. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah that one stays in the Disney vault. Then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's him. Mm -hmm. yeah. No that I mean that sounds like what a guy would do in 1995. What? Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at Mad TV. We love, we love Miss Swan. Yeah, or, or Mike Myers did the same thing on and like a 93 or 94 sketch. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We were doing it at the time, but I, I don't think it's available now. I thought like some little stinker put this on YouTube, but it's not available. It's up to one of you little stinkers out there if you want to put it on YouTube, and uh, you'd go viral for sure if you put that out there. You could double cancel John Lasseter. <laughs> now I'm only vaguely remembering uh, it being. An Asian character it was some kind of offensive accent he was doing mm -hmm. so <laughs> it's uh th that's for you the Sherlock's out there to find mm -hmm. out
So a big issue this movie had is that obviously most people think bugs are disgusting. They're like, let's make bugs more attractive. So they remove disgusting visual elements like the bugs don't have mandibles. They have mouths like you and I. They have teeth like you and I. Fingers. And yeah, <laughs> they got rid of the segmentation. They made them bipedal. And they also, for the grasshoppers who are the bad guys, they actually gave them extra limbs to make them more disgusting. Oh, all right, that, that makes sense. They They do seem more bug-like than the ants yeah yeah and this is the first pixar movie with crowds so toy story has scenes with many characters but some scenes of a bug's life feature the entire colony so they had to come up with new tech for that to happen and not kill them so what they did was they basically built a library of four thousand distinct motions for the ants and then software would randomize the timing of these animations slightly so all of them wouldn't play out in sync. Though if you pay very close attention to the ants in the background, if you just focus on one at a time, you can see the kind of loop they go through. I did catch a little of that in the big the big moment of where it does a pan around as Hopper sees all the ants realize that they outnumber him. That's when I was like, oh, I can see the cycling. But we are so used to now seeing like, Everyone has this technology for repeating uh, backgrounds like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in... I've, I haven't seen the movie. I know you've seen it. Um, and I did say that with Judgment Henry. Space Jam, A New Legacy. <laughs> yes. I've yes. seen the, when they're in the server verse, and it's like every character from Warner Brothers who have not been sold off uh, yet. <laughs> right. And it is like, yes, it's a loop of like an animated gif of Pennywise doing a shtick. And like you can, actually, you can see when the, the animations loop for the extras they brought in to dance around as baby jane and the penguin and that and that it's shit. it's quite horrible also to to steal a line from our, our pal scott gearner it's that they're lit fully like they're just in pure brightness and they completely draw your attention away from any character in the foreground like it's it's terribly lit and directed as well yes. that movie has yeah. a director uh i mean technically speaking yeah i mean though Really, LeBron James is in charge on the set. That's like, oh, you know, Mike Myers is directed on Austin Powers 3. Like, no, he's not. <laughs> Jay Roach is technically the director, but if Mike Myers says, you do this, then you do it. Yeah, this this was, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary technology. I mean, Hunchback had, in, during the topsy-turvy sequence, they had the primitive CGI people in the background doing similar things. There weren't as many of them. Space Jam the year before this, or maybe 96, I think it was, they had crowds, but they were like randomized Warner Brothers character designs that are basically like kind of um, flat cardboard people. They look amazingly hideous. I think when we did that podcast during the pandemic, I was freeze framing on them and tweeting <laughs> yes. the weird little CGI creations. Because there's some real mix and matches in there. Just like, yeah, it it all looks like shit. I think it's it's either... Hunchback or Space Jam where they had the term called the people hose where they just are like, ah, just say you want this much and it just dumps people oh, into an area. I thought area. that was Futurama. Oh, that's right. Futurama that's has right. the people hose. Similar, similar tech though. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, like a lot is going on tech wise and uh, other things include uh, character designs that are much more complex and they also employ something called subdivision surfaces which allow for a more realistic appearance when it comes to skin and clothing. Like, more organic substances, not the plastic of Woody and Buzz or like the linoleum floors or whatever of Toy Story. When you have skin and clothing, you want to make it look less uh, fake. And that's what they're doing here. Back then, it was like with video games, how a year in video games tech wise, you would see huge expansions of like, wow, they couldn't do this a year ago. 
I mean, a video game of today, if you look at the best-looking video game now, it looks better than the best-looking video game of 2019. But to me, the difference doesn't feel the same. And it's the same with, like, a Pixar movie of now compared to te- four years ago. Uh, the, the improvement doesn't feel the same. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the innovations are getting less noticeable, I guess, because, I mean, I, I, I'm glad we grew up when we did because we saw so many huge advancements in technology in terms of, like, graphical technology. If you look at the 10-year span between, like, Final Fantasy IV and Final Fantasy X, completely different worlds. But if we go back to whatever Final Fantasy game was in 2013, I think it was, like, Lightning Returns. And Final Fantasy XVI, I like Lightning Returns. You take that back, sir. Uh, All right. Have you played it? Uh, For previews, I didn't finish it. That's right. All right. Well, it's just like, uh, it's Sarah, but it's not really Sarah. It's like, I've I've been through this before. I'm playing it for not the story at all, because it's garbage. Uh, All right. Don't worry about that. Uh, But, like, Lightning Returns and Final Fantasy XVI, yeah, XVI technically a better-looking game but they don't seem to come from different worlds you know yeah yeah no and same like i mean i remember the first time i saw all the hair on the the monsters of monsters inc and thinking like this could never be done before like and it doesn't and i'm sure there are tech things in elemental for example with water tech or fire tech that they couldn't have done in say coco but it doesn't feel as impressive, uh, all, all the same. We're going to sound like the oldest men in the world <laughs> when we tell people about the Incredibles. Like, they couldn't make humans. <laughs> they just couldn't do it. Look at that person walk by the camera. You couldn't do that before. Let's walk you into the incinerator, Mr. Mackey. <laughs> okay. You've taken up too many resources. <laughs> uh, so we're going to move on now. So, yeah, subdivision surfaces. That was a new innovation in this movie, and uh, Jerry's game was the short they made to test out the technology. Like, let's make an old man with wrinkled skin, let's give him clothing that's a little rumpled and wrinkled, let's see how this looks, and that's a great looking short. I love that short, yeah, and it's great. They they love Jerry so much, they put him in Toy Story 2 mm-hmm. as well, yeah. And I will definitely talk more about the animation uh, as we go through the movie through the commentary, because the commentary on the DVD is great. And there's a lot of like moment by moment things they talk about that I'll bring up during our commentary. I mean, like you said, the water alone is like that's their that's their biggest show off special effect. It's the first shot in the movie is like, look at that ripple on the water. Eh, can't see that elsewhere. And then the rainstorm at the end, which mm-hmm. much like in The Incredibles, the tech people said no at first. And then <laughs> they had to go like, no, we're doing this. Then uh, you know what? They they pulled it off. They pulled it off very well for 1998. But it is sort of like a you-had-to-be-there thing because these were huge innovations. The movie being outside, these photorealistic, in big quotes, outdoor environments. Of course, yes, uh, Toy Story 4 looks so much better than this and other modern Pixar movies, but nobody had the balls to do this yet. <laughs> yeah, if you compare it to everything else then, there's no, there is no comparison. The the. What are you going to compare this to? Like the Beast Wars TV show? Like that, that they could not touch this movie. And then Monsters Inc. is like, what if we were inside houses all day in, in factories? What if we never went outside? That's our next movie. <laughs> uh, you know, all their, the big effort went into hair and uh, one human, one little girl mm-hmm. that, that people love who has her hair up in pigtails the entire time to keep that hair under control. I got to go back to, to Boo. Is her name Boo? Boo, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Get it? Because like, Boo, scary. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I like Boo. I'm sorry. Uh, she, uh, you know, I thought she was cute. They also just rip off that uh, 
Mark Anthony Chuck Jones thing for the the best scene in the movie where where Sully thinks she's dead and he's oh. reacting like yeah they just beat for beat take it okay yeah. I've only seen that movie once so I never made the connection that's uh speaking of other things at DCA I didn't uh, at Disney California Adventure Thank I did you. not engage with I still haven't ridden the Monsters Inc uh, baby ride there you gotta do it so you can be like oh there's a Reach's Philbin under one of these <laughs> monsters I know that's really why I should do it yes uh, even though it's for babies and eventually. It will be knocked down to add some Marvel crap there instead, as as I want as a man-child. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.